When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So, Whit, you're a professor at UMKC, but you've had lots of other jobs and lots of other places, and I'm wondering if in all that that long career, long and varied career, have you ever resigned? I resigned the only one time, well, and the one that comes to mind is that I quit from working on the FV Odyssey, fishing vessel Odyssey, in Ketchikan, Alaska one year when our skipper had made us work for two months including three weeks into the season repairing his boat and not making any money at all. And then I almost cut my finger off with a bandsaw and then I quit. Oh my God. And no doubt you wrote a scathing letter and posted it on Twitter. No, no. I was like, <laughs> can I have a ride back to shore? And I'm going to leave. <laughs> it's very, very metaphorically rich today. Um, so I have actually, I think, not not resigned a job in quite this fashion. I've also never posted a resignation letter on Twitter. But our guest today did just that when she quit her job in mid-March. Uh, that's right. Uh, in mid-March, Molly McGee tweeted about deciding to leave her job as an editor at Tor. And with her thread about why, kicked off a major and very public discussion about publishing burnout or hashtag publishing burnout. And we're very glad to have her with us to continue that discussion today. Molly is from a cluster of small towns just north of Nashville. She writes fiction and has worked in the editorial and digital departments of McSweeney's and The Believer, as well as MCD and FSG Originals, and as an assistant editor at Diane Williams Noon. Molly previously worked in the editorial department of Tor, bringing luminaries such as John M. Ford back to print through the Tor Essentials series, as well as assisting in the launch of Tor's horror imprint, Nightfire. Molly graduated from Columbia University with an MFA in fiction. While there, she taught undergraduate creative writing as a teaching fellow. Molly, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So on March 11th, you tweeted out your resignation letter as we were discussing. And as of this recording, we're taping on April 3rd. Uh, not April 1st. Um, it has been liked more than 7,000 times. Um, and at the time that you resigned, yeah. <laughs> Angeline Rodriguez, Hillary Sames, I think, am I say, if I'm saying that name right, um, at Orbit and Aaron uh, Siu at uh, Macmillan's Children resigned. After your first tweet, a number of others surfaced agreeing with your points and adding to them through the hashtag publishing burnout. Some of them had left publishing jobs themselves. I wonder if you could start off we just sort of wanted to frame the situation that we're talking about here, and maybe you could start off by just reading the letter to us. Yeah, I would love to. Um, 
You know, ironically, I am cat sitting at Angeline Rodriguez's apartment right now. It's quite beautiful. <laughs> so publishing is a very small world. Um, okay, I'm going to read it for you guys. As some of you may have heard, today is my last day at Tor Books. My promotion request was denied. And as such, I am leaving as my first acquisition, The Marvelous, The Atlas Six by Olive Blake, debuts at number three on the New York Times bestsellers list. For those of you not familiar with editorial structure at publishing houses, making the NYT is a career high for an editor. It is really rare for an assistant to do so. And by all accounts, this should be a quote, great beginning and not a heartbreaking end. But it has been made clear to me that I would need more training before being promoted from an assistant position and that it would be unrealistic for me to leave the admin duties of assisting anytime within the next five years. After eight years of experience working in the publishing industry, I decided 10 years of assisting would be my limit, um, let alone 15. It has been an honor working with Davy Pillay. She's a genius. And the TDA staff, as well as Macmillan at large. This is not a TDA specific issue or even a Macmillan one. Rather, it's an indicator of a system-wide prejudice against junior employees that is rooted in the invisibility of their workload. Many executives in the publishing industry are technologically illiterate. They cannot use their own databases, pull their own manuscripts, organize their own inboxes, or navigate the constant influx of new technology. As such, this often falls on the junior employees who are expected to perform both full-time admin work in addition to their full-time jobs. Each time a junior employee is told they do not have enough experience to pursue their career, I hear a common refrain used by employers who do not understand their own systems or the workload of their own employees. As we move to increasing reliance on technology in an environment where technological literacy is paramount, publishing companies should consider investing in their digitally native employees who maintain the systems that keep their companies running. As fewer and fewer companies choose to do so, it is no wonder we're seeing such high turnover in these roles. When the great masters of editing die or retire, what will happen to all their apprentices? Like me, they will have left before they became a master themselves. Soon, our great publishers will be staffed only with novices. I find myself asking, what will books look like then? Molly, thank you so much. What you said generated an enormous reaction, as I was telling you just before we started recording. I was kind of off Twitter uncharacteristically before working on my own book. And one of my former students texted me and sort of said, like, did you see this? And I was like, oh, my God. You know, and she said, search pu hashtag publishing burnout. It is not cheerful. And um, there was this huge, important public conversation. I'm curious as to whether you got any responses from higher ups. I had a lot of responses. Um, I, th I think, you know, this has been going on very slowly over the course of the last six months. You know, I think about Margot Weissman, who um, ended up leaving editorial for sales about two weeks ago and posted a really interesting Twitter thread, which honestly is the reason I was inspired to sort of like 
stand up for myself as well. I had a lot of people reach out privately to me and publicly and express that this is something that they felt as well, but that they were really nervous to burn any bridges. Um, you know, the thing about publishing is that no matter how high you are, if, especially if you're an editorial, you had to start from the bottom. And so you have um, been experiencing this struggle for years and years and then find yourself in a position of frustration where you cannot alleviate that struggle for other people below you. And so I think this is something that a lot of people are thinking about, but because we're in such a small industry where so many people know one another, they don't feel comfortable speaking out publicly about it. And they feel quite disempowered and alone in their struggle towards burnout. The other thing that's interesting about what you're talking about is you're talking about a specific kind of position, right? That's so unique to the publishing industry, this editorial assistant position. I wonder if you could just talk about that position and what it is and how it's how it's developed over time for readers of our uh, listeners of ours who aren't familiar with that. Yeah, totally. Thank you, Whitney, for asking. Um, you know, I think that something really interesting and unique about publishing is that it is run on an apprenticeship model. So when you come in, especially to editorial, you start from the bottom, no matter your experience with very few exceptions. Sometimes, um, you know, a celebrity editor can come in at a higher stage or sometimes people make a switch from marketing and publicity to editorial. But for the most part, you start as an assistant and then, um, go through a period of what I like to think of as hazing that can take um, two, two to five years. I sort of explain it to people like you are entering into a profession that is highly competitive with a lot of people in the junior position who want to get into it. So there is, um, how do I want to put this? there's a high, uh, there's a high pool of people you can hire from. So before I became an editorial assistant at Tor, I had taught undergraduate writing at Columbia. I had worked in associate positions at McSweeney's and The Believer, but in the digital side of things, I had been a proofreader, a copy editor. I had done um, narrative consulting for clients like Google and SoulCycle, and I still had to start at an editorial assistant position. And that is because I needed to learn um, the ropes, as I was told. And this is not abnormal. Everyone that I was working with at Tor had either been in publishing for four or five years before they started in editorial assisting, or they had master's degrees, graduate degrees. It is a highly competitive hiring environment. Once you're in it, you do a lot of um, support work, and this can really depend on what this looks like for you can really depend on who you're supporting. So for me, um, I was supporting three to four editors in their digital workload and in their production cycles. So what that meant was I was tracking submissions, corresponding with authors, um, handling the production timeline, working really closely interdepartmentally so that everybody was on the same page. Um, maintaining what was fed out to retailers and sales teams, basically all the invisible invisible labor that goes into getting a book to the consumer. Um, a lot of logistics work. Most people I talk to think about um, editorial assistant roles as production manager roles. You're in charge of a lot of deadlines, 
a lot of tracking, a, a lot of high level communication while your editor focuses on their job, editing, um, acquiring, making connections, um, positioning, pitching, those type of things. I mean, I had a lot, I don't know, Sugi, I'm sure this is true for you. I had a tremendous amount of contact with my editor's various editorial assistants over the years, right? I, but I had never thought about until we just, we, you know, Sugi alerted me to your Twitter thread and, and we started looking into this, like about how much of this work is falling on the editorial assistant. And there's also the issue that, you know, we've talked about this in the show. I think Oscar V. Ilon was talking about this in publishing that you're being asked to do a ton of work for very little pay, which limits the number of people who can actually take the job, right, in the first place. Yes, that's very true. Um, you know, I am from a very low-income background myself, and it took years of single-minded dedication to get my foot in the door. So once I was in it and realized how unlivable and untenable the pay is for the amount of work that you do, it was a very heartbreaking experience for me. And I think that is true for a lot of people who don't come from family money, um, and especially true for junior employees who um, have to deal with the sort of added discrimination of like being very racially different. Like, I mean, the whole publishing industry is the whitest place on earth. Um, so it can be, it can be a lot of high turnover um, that you see in these populations that already have a really hard time accessing um, entry points. I wonder, we're tossing around terms here and just for the sake of defining a little bit, I was reading, um, we'll get to this a little bit later, but I kind of went down a rabbit hole of reading about administrative work in publishing and reading about how Right. Many women in particular used to start as secretaries and then become assistant editors or editorial assistants. So like when we say editorial assistant and assistant editor, are these two different things or are they two different names for the same thing? They are two different things. So I was promoted to an assistant editor after a year at Tor. Um, usually it takes two to three years, but because of my prior experience um, and just really aggressively advocating for myself, I was able to speed up that timeline. Um, but editorial assistance, it is very secretarial. Uh, it is really like project management, database management. There's a lot of what people pitch to you as managing up, which means like keeping track of your editor's calendars, your pro your production calendars, your marketing calendars, and making sure everybody is on the same page. Um, a lot of scheduling, a lot of note taking, a lot of synthesizing and explaining. Um, and then when you are promoted to assistant editor, you retain all of those responsibilities from being an editorial assistant, but you are now expected to begin the process of acquiring. Um, so you take on basically the role of an editor on top of, so you are the assistant to three editors, and then you are also editing and expected to be your own assistant. So. Um, you basically take on another job and then you are expected to assist all the way through so, associate. So you editing. had this, we're going to link to, oh, sorry, go ahead. Super oh, no, I just was going to ask. So, I mean, I, I always ask this when I, um, I just, how many books were you managing in a year, including the, the, the books of the people you were working for? How many titles are you looking at? So many books. Um, there's a publishing term called frontlist and backlist. So frontlist means uh, published in either the last two years or the upcoming two years. And those books are what are counted as your workload. 
um, because you are actively moving them through the production process. And the only books that are counted in that workload are um, the titles that are called originals. So that means it's the first part of the publication process. So offset titles, which are front lists that are being made into trade paperback, um, are still part of your workload, but they're not counted. I was also doing backlist titles, which are all the titles that have been published before, but still need maintenance. Once you become an editor, supposedly you're only working on your front list original titles. So those are the things that are coming out in hardcover or trade paperback original for the first time um, that year or in the next two years. You're launching them, you're positioning them, you're editing them, you're working really closely with your marketing team and your author trying to come up with a plan. But once those books are published for the first time, they still have work that is needed to be done for them. Um, and backlist is actually a huge part of revenue for um, publishers. These are like your books like um, Dune, right? They're huge, big sellers, you know, they're bestsellers, but they're no longer considered frontless, so they're no longer really counted in your workload. At various points of my career, I think the highest amount of frontless and backlist I was tracking was somewhere between 75 and 100 books that I was accountable for and had to answer questions from agents, um, subrights, you know, marketing, production, authors, author estates. But the work that was not frontless was invisible because it was not counted as my workload. So the 75 to 100 was the front list. 75 from 100 was the total list. Um, I think half of that was front list because I was assisting three or four editors at a time. And what we think of as years, like in one year, you know, let's say it's 2020, I was working on um, all the 2020 books, all the 2021 books and prepping for 2022. So publishing is um, several years ahead. It takes two years for a book to be published. So um, publishers move in what are called seasons. Uh, Macmillan has, I think three seasons and Penguin Random House has two. It's different for every house. Um, but like say you could be working on spring 23 books at the same time as you're working on um, like fall 2022 books. You're often working across seasons at once. So I think at my height, I was usually assisting across three or four seasons. Um, so all this to say is that publishing is a business and it has to be run like a business. There are very complex operational procedures um, that you have to take into account for to get books into the hands of readers. And so that means you're often looking across um, different publication seasons so that you could best be prepared to release those books. There was a, a list of, uh, you gave a similar list of duties to like Publishers Lunch, I think, in an interview that you did with them. Yes. And I was just shocked and amazed. And I didn't understand that assistant editors would continue doing that much of what an editorial assistant would do. You know, the thing is like where you don't see a lot of turnover in publishing and it's people's dream jobs. And so that level of exploitation is really built into the individual because they want to progress so bad. But the thing is, you know, these senior editors, executive editors, there are some of them who are effectively retired and your assistant editor or your editorial assistant 
is doing all the work and then it's being put under your executive editor's name. Um, and I think, you know, what part of the reason of that is connections. You know, those people have a lot of connections. They have access that you don't have when you start out. Another is that um, sort of like Suki and I were talking about earlier, publishing is, is kind of like academia where the people who are in it are almost tenured to a level where they um, are given so much more flexibility and the people who are beneath them are expected to lift up um, their desk and put their desk ahead of their own. Um, and I certainly saw that in many of the places that I worked and I don't think again that it was a Macmillan or Tor specific issue. Um, you know, when I talked to my friends, I often thought like, wow, I am re I'm really happy I work at Tor because at least I have, you know, a, a publisher, an editorial director, a sales team who is really on my side and wants to work together. We're gonna to take a quick break right here and we'll be right back. Wait, do you remember when we started the show five years ago? I think that like one of the first things that I felt really awkward about was I mean, who likes to listen to themselves talk? And I was like, how is my voice going to sound on air? Like, oh, God. And I th there was that dreaded first take tape that we did. Yeah. Long since deleted. We buried in the backyard. Long since deleted. And I think, you know, with our background as as writers, like the, the importance of the written word is really obvious. But I think I started to really pay attention more to like how I was talking. And, you know, you gave me some great tips. But when it came to getting our voices kind of uh, show ready... I really wish I had had a real expert like the people at Such a Voice. Yeah, and I am no expert on, you know, how to do anything, uh, you know, in terms of the, the way your voice sounds on, on, on a recording for a podcast. Fortunately, you know, Such a Voice has people who are experts within that industry um, and can give you lessons on how to do all kinds of different voices, how to do audiobooks, how to do commercials, how to do animation. Um, I mean, it's just that there's so many options within that world, things that you can learn how to do at your house, sitting in your office, doing what I'm doing right now. Um, but you'll be a real voice, a real world voice actor, and you can figure out how the industry works. Yeah. And, you know, um, I did um, some lessons with such a voice and it was so fun it was so fun i think that well we had the we, same guy can we say his, his name, name? it was tim, tim powers, powers. he was awesome it. he was awesome he was so fun and like also it just was really clear um like it's very clear like what i should do to be better at this and um and he had such a range of experience it was kind of incredible to listen to all of the stuff that he had done kind of in this field and he was just really fun the most interesting thing that he said that I had never thought of was that, you know, he had me read a script the first time and then think about an emotional incident that happened right before it that was extremely personal to me. And he was saying, like, reading the words is not, you need to not pay attention to the words. You need to pay attention to the emotion behind the words. And like, you could read the phone book, but with emotion, and that will connect with readers. And I just thought that was a fascinating insight. And he taught me how to do it. Yeah. I felt like at the end of it, um, I was better. I was just better at it and um, was going to have things that I could remember so that I wouldn't like sometimes I learn something and it kind of like falls out of my brain because the pandemic has been rough and my mind is a sieve. But he like gave it to me in these kind of like clear steps and, and just like clear things to remember and hold on to so that the next time I am doing this, I can keep that with me. And we both teach writers and we want, we know, I always tell advise writers who are applying to MFA programs, 
make sure that the people who are teaching you are publishing. You know, and Tim is a working voice actor who, you know, has been working for Disney, who's worked for Netflix. The people who are at this company really know what they're talking about. They're involved in the industry, and I think that that is crucial. So if you've been looking for a way to get into the voiceover industry, visit suchavoice.com FNF and receive a complimentary copy of Such a Voice's Must Knows of Voiceover. And if you do this, you get access to advice from professional voiceover artists in the industry to help you out. And again, these are people who are out there doing it every day, the audiobooks, narration, animation, um, working actors. And um, you just go to suchavoice.com slash FNF today, and you can see if a career in voiceover is right for you. And again, I just want to emphasize, this was super fun. It was really interesting to me that while this conversation was going on, one of the things that came up was um, agents also talking about feeling squished. And I wondered, yes. was that news to you and, and kind of how far across publishing and, and what different parts kind of beyond publishing houses is this stretching into? You know, the editorial workload is so invisible. And since 2008, we have seen cuts in editorial departments year over year. So you have very few editors who can only acquire so many titles a year and only have so much time. Um, that restriction is not the same for agents. So they are having to work even harder to stand out, um, even harder to make those connections. You know, say there's only, gosh, like, how many sci-fi and fantasy editors are there in New York publishing right now? Like 20 tops? Um, how many agents are there and how many authors are writing those books? Like these editors cannot, you know, they have to read on their own time. They are just human beings. They cannot like go through all of these submissions. So for an agent to um, be able just to even have access to editorial, it's so difficult for them. Um, they are expected to work all the time, be always available, because when they do get a response, it's so rare that they have to act immediately. Um, and it's just not sustainable for anybody involved. Um, and I think we've seen it worsen over the pandemic, um, which has allowed us to have these conversations, thankfully. So I wondered, uh, speaking of, you know, reading out off, out of work and doing work, uh, you know, not during work time, which is what everybody does in publishing. I mean, my I've visited my agent and uh, and, you know, we've, he's been my agent for a very long time, but he's always reading something. He's reading stuff at home. He's reading stuff on the train. He's reading, you know, um, and I'm sure that's true for you. Um, I wondered if you, you know, we taught we mentioned the Atlas Six um, being on the bestsellers list and this was your first acquisition. Could you talk a little bit about like, just give us a like, what, what is the work that's going into acquiring that novel, how you first read it, um, and how you, the work you did on editing it while, you know, doing this other administrative workload that you also had? Absolutely. Um, before we start discussing the Atlas Six, I do want to say, however, that this is Olive Blake's debut novel, um, and I do not want to shift the conversation from how amazing this book is to the labor that was involved in it because um y'all are both authors you know how hard it is just to get that first one published um and this is an amazing book that olive wrote so she really put in 
massive amounts of work. And I want to honor the fact that um, me leaving in the middle of her trilogy put her in a very awkward position. Um, so I really don't want to um, take away from the magic that is having a debut novel out in the world by discussing too much about the nitty gritty that went into it. I was very lucky I got to work with her amazing agent, Amelia Apple. Um, and I, well, that's fine, you know, but I feel like as a writer, like I'm standing on my editor's shoulders and I appreciate the work that they do. And I don't think in acknowledging that they do work, it diminishes my work. I, I think that is way. totally true. Um, but, you know, not everyone in their debut novel does have to deal with such a public facing exodus. Um, and she... All publicity is good publicity, I say. <laughs> I, you know, uh, I think that is true to an extent, but all of you worked really, really, really hard and Tor is doing an amazing job bringing out her books and I'm so excited for her second one to come out too. Um, I really don't want to take the conversation away from, um, how exciting that is for readers you know, did I read the submission on my own personal time? Yes. Did I edit the books on my own personal time because I couldn't do it during office hours? Yes. Did I text poor Olivia at like 11 p.m. Eastern time? Like, hey, what do you think? You know, yes, I did. Um, she worked incredibly, incredibly hard. Um, but I really don't want to make the conversation about me when it really should be about her amazing work. It seems like... Um so many of us have been so fortunate to work with editors who have treated our work with this kind of care, um, you know, who have um, under considerable strain, including during a pandemic, um, possibly with small children, possibly working from shifting homes, you know, shown such care and patience with us. And I just want to echo what Whitney said about really appreciating that, really appreciating my own current editor who I know, um, is really working her tail off. Um, and like we were saying earlier, so much of this sounds similar to academia. And to me, it sounds similar to academia in a very specific way. Like this thing about administrative work, right? At universities, staff is dominated by women and non-binary folks. And, and that, in my opinion, has so much to do with how they're treated and how that labor is treated. Like, And we've talked before about diversity in publishing on this show. And, and the Lee and Lowe Diversity in Publishing Survey from 2019 you were alluding to this before that, you know, a huge, um, I think it's 75 or 80% of people in publishing are white. Um, 74% of people in publishing are cis women. And there's a history of women in publishing. And I was talking about this before being assigned more administrative and clerical work, like entering and sort of being asked to do secretarial work. And then men with the same titles, not being expected to do that. And one person tweeting in response to your thread was a man reporting that he noticed that he was being treated better than his peers and given more opportunities for advancement and that he was shocked by it. So I wonder if you can talk about how you see, what does gender and the history of gender in publishing have to do with the problem that you're describing? That is a great question. I think it is, there's a very gender divide in publishing that is a lived reality um, for many. And I also think there's a huge racial divide in publishing. And it's almost, it's, it's quite sad to witness you know, your female colleagues working so hard um, and caring so much about their jobs that it, witnessing it being actively devalued is really, really sad. 
you know, I think there, it just really has to do with um, workplace culture and social values. Like, I think it all has to do with like, what are behaviors that are rewarded? What are behaviors that are punished? And, you know, sometimes the, the people at the very top are often white men who are socially coded to behave as white men do and value things like um, aggressiveness and taking credit for things and, um, you know, like doing things without permission, like uh, acting almost rudely or um, taking what's yours. I've seen it rewarded over and over again. And I've also seen, you know, elements of white culture being, not that really you can have white culture, but, um, seeing it being rewarded as well, like almost like a, um, you know, when you do confront things head, head on, you're considered difficult, but not in a good way when you don't, um, sort of navigate the subtleties and an etiquette that is often like aligned with sort of waspy values. Like you are considered not as intelligent how these can be addressed, I don't know. I think some really, really smart people are working on those things, but change is often so slow. Um, and you are just one person, you're a worker. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, how much can I contribute to trying to change the culture? And how much can I personally take of this? And, you know, for me, some things that I really valued when I was an editor was I really valued transparency. I really valued open communication. I valued um, creating spaces where my authors could be wildly vulnerable um, without risking sort of their professional standing. And that's not always, you know, something that every, those are, those are things that not everyone values. Um, and I reached a certain point where I was like, I have to ask myself, like, I have done a lot of work to change the industry and I'm so proud of that work, but how much can I personally take on? And at what point is it becoming detrimental to um, my life? And I think that is a question a lot of people are beginning to ask themselves. I think um, there's a lot of love and labor that is going into creating a more inclusive workplace on every single level, but it is very emotionally draining to do so. Um, and it's very hard. And I myself found, I found myself in a place where I had to take a step back. Um, and I know a lot of other people have felt sort of the same way as a sort of the stresses of the pandemic have compounded. I was interested in you talk uh, in the letter that you read, um, you talked about uh, uh, the publishing, what, wondering what the publishing would look like when it invests in its digitally native employees who maintain the systems <laughs> that keep the companies running. It reminded me of uh, something that my, my wife told me that her father, who's a Jewish stockbroker in San Francisco, said to her when she was young, which was for both of us, unfortunately, a long time ago. And um, he said... Don't learn how to type because if you learn how to type, people will think that that's all you're supposed to do. And I wonder, it made me think, okay, so, so being good at, you know, social media and being able to move from, you know, one platform to another, which are things that the older editors can't do. 
actually their inability to do it like frees them up to do these other things, right? They don't, they can make someone else do it. And I wonder if like being, you would think it would be an asset, but it sounds to me like actually it's a way of like suppressing younger talent to make them do all this digital stuff. You know, I think that it, it has to do with a generational divide there. If you don't know what the work of something entails, then you know you have no idea what the value is. Um, you know, I I think it's really comparable to people being like talking shit about line cooks, you know, and chefs. It's like that is an incredibly difficult job, um, and the only reason you can sort of like look down at it is because you have no idea what it entails. And the same is true for like being digitally literate. It is a lot of work to learn new systems, keep up with them, and to be able to move fluidly between them. And right now we're at a space where it is detrimental um, for younger employees to be able to do those things because, you know, the better you are at doing them, the longer people will want you to do them for you. Um, and advice I got a lot, uh, actually, when I started assistant was be a bad assistant because if you're a good assistant, then you'll be stuck in assisting, which is quite sad. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it. Can you even, can you get hired as a, at, at an entry level job now without being digitally native? I mean, is it part of sort of what they would ask you? I think that it is a realm that is completely invisible to most hiring managers. I don't think they realize the time that it goes, that goes into it. I don't think they realize the skill that it entails. Um, I think they, don't engage with it at all costs and they don't value it at all. Um, and eventually it's going to cost companies a lot of money. And I have a feeling it's going to be sometime in the next 10 years when it starts being valued. This is terrible for us, Sugi, because uh, Sugi teaches with me. I teach a podcasting practicum course and the students work on this show. They're going to listen to this and help us, you know, and one of the things that we tell them to do is like they have to run our social media accounts because that's something you should learn to do and will be valuable. And now we're finding out now, actually, you should, you should be terrible at social media. <laughs> we'll find no, out. No, I think it's good we'll for see how the they company. React to that. I think it's good for the company. I think, you know, I started doing, I started as a social media person. You know, I used to help run um, McSweeney's social media. Um, and it's a really great skill. But, you know, when I left publishing to work sort of in narrative consulting and social consulting for a little bit, it was often called the pink ghetto because it's a skill that men don't have or, you know, not all, not all men, but um, it's a very, it's also a very female driven workplace. Um, and it's also, a, you know, everything tech involves, there's no end to the labor. Like it's something you have to continuously do. There's no end to the project. Um, so to your lovely student workers who are going to work on this and post on social about it, thank you. I'm impressed by the skill that it takes, you know, not to get canceled online or, um, not to <laughs> say something totally fucking crazy, um, and be able to communicate with massive amounts of people at once. I think it's a great skill. So Molly, you have an MFA from Columbia and of course you write fiction yourself. And so I think... Um, I so appreciate your raising all of this publicly, which I think must have been hard. And 
I understand, um, I was reading your essay in the Paris Review online, and, and I understand you're working on a novel about the inherent absurdity of debt. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about that project. And, and now that you've left tour, where you're headed next? Y'all caught me at a really good time because I'm actually announcing this novel um, tomorrow <laughs> on, twi on Twitter. Um, I'll, I'll read you what my publisher sent over um, because it's still a very new experience for me. So it's called Jonathan Abernathy, You Are Kind. And I sold it in a preempt to Danny Vasquez at Astra House. I am really, really excited to work with them. I think they are... Um, having some amazing conversations about what publishing is and what it can do and what we owe readers and what we owe writers and what we owe employees. Um, so it's my debut novel about a man behind on his student loan payments. So he takes a job auditing the dreams of white collar workers, flagging their anxieties and preoccupations for removal. It's darkly comedic. Um, I was in a pretty dark place when I wrote it. Uh, so it's got all the pain points and all the high points of grieving. And, you know, my editor says it is a, quote, riotous reckoning with the emotional and psychological tolls of late stage capitalism, unquote. <laughs> that just kind of makes me laugh. Um, I don't know. I don't know how people will feel about it, but I am very excited for it to be in the world. That's amazing. Molly, congratulations. That's where I'm so excited to read it. Um, it sounds like it is going to be a book that we will need right at the moment that it, when will it be out? Um, I think late 2023 right now. Okay. Hopefully no production delays or anything like that. Um, yeah, I'm really excited and I'm really, really nervous. <laughs> um, well, it sounds wonderful. And we so appreciate you joining us today. And um, since you can't get by Jonathan Abernathy, Your Kind. You can get The Atlas Six by Olivia Blake, um, the fantasy novel that Molly acquired and edited for Tor and which is now on the bestseller list. And you can be on the lookout for more of Molly's writing. So Molly, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, thank you for having me on. Uh, it was lovely talking to you both. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub. This show is produced by Anne Knigendorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings and links we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with a full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Thanks so much for listening. And I'd like to end today's show with a reading recommendation for a book by a previous guest. Right now I'm reading The Art of Revision from The Art of series, edited by previous guest Charles Baxter and written by previous guest Peter Ho Davies. It's just a terrific read. And I think a lot of you would really enjoy it. So if you've got a chance, check it out. All right, until next time.